Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, we're doing an encore episode of the interview of Stoughton Lend, a noted historian, labor historian, attorney, uh, many things that we're going to talk about here in a second. Uh, he he passed away yesterday. Uh, this interview that we're posting, it was actually the second Green and Red episode ever, and it was the first interview that we ever did, and it's an interview with Bob and, and Stoughton Lend. Uh, and uh, he passed away yesterday at the age of 92. Um, and we're going to just talk about him a little bit before we uh, let you listen to the episode. Yeah, I've talked about Stott. We've talked about Stott on this various podcast. Uh, he lived in Niles, Ohio, which is where I grew up and where I spent a lot of time still. And um, in late 2019, Scott and I had decided to finally do a podcast. We've been talking about it for some time. And I was getting ready to leave uh, at winter break. And I went over and I interviewed um, Stott Lynn. Uh, who was, you know, just an incredible, uh, was an incredible life, an incredible inspiration to, to many of us. And so um, that was actually the first show we did, but we it was the second episode that we published. Um, Stoughton uh, was the son of Robert and Helen Lind, who were very well known in their own right. Robert Lind was a very famous sociologist who uh, wrote a study of uh, Muncie, Indiana called Middletown, which still stands as one of the, the more important um, Kind of sociological studies of, of the entire uh, 20th century. Uh, Stoughton uh, went to Harvard and then got his PhD in history at Columbia. Legend has it that there's a very famous professor at Columbia named Garrett Mattingly, who uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for a book he wrote on the Spanish Armada. And when uh, Stoughton graduated, he asked Mattingly to write a letter of recommendation for him. And Mattingly uh, simply said something to the effect of, uh, my only regret is that he wasn't my student. So Stott was exceptional from the very start. Um, he had an academic career. His first academic position was at Spelman College where he taught with uh, someone else we're all familiar with, Howard Zinn. And he and Howard were really best friends uh, throughout their entire life. Uh, Howard ran afoul of the Spelman administration because of the activities with SNCC and other groups. And Stott led the campaign to defend Howard Zinn and Howard eventually you know, basically was was fired and, and Stott decided to leave too. Uh, he ended up at Yale uh, shortly after that. And uh, he taught there for a while too, until more trouble befell him. But it was good trouble, uh, not surprisingly. Um, uh, Stoughton became one of the better known historians of the entire 20th century. And everything I say about him today is not hyperbolic. I mean, he led a, a, just an amazing life. Um, and even though, you know, I, I have a, I'm, a, I'm a historian myself, uh, my area is more kind of contemporary 20th century, especially post-1945. Stoughton did his work in early colonial America. So I was familiar with it in graduate school. I mean, I came to know Stoughton Lynn very early. Uh, he was the first person, I think, to really kind of look at uh, the American War for Independence as in, in terms of the class issues involved, as well as the kind of battle against the British for independence. So there's a very famous... Uh, Kind of phrase for people who study that uh, was the war about home rule, meaning whether the Americans or the British were going to be in charge, or was it about who should rule at home? And that issue of who should rule at home really was was the area where Stoughton kind of created a, a, a brand new interpretation of it and showed how class conflict within the colonies was a really critical factor in the in the crisis of the 1760s, 1770s, and onward, as much as the conflict against the British. Uh, there was a uh, inside the what would become the United States. There was this kind of ruling class, these merchants, these aristocrats, the people who we consider today our founding fathers, uh, who wanted to essentially take over for the British, not really change American society all that dramatically. Hamilton, obviously, the best example of that. But within the colonies, you had uh, a class-based movement of debtors and workers and farmers and mechanics and people like that. And so Stott really, I think, uh, was really cutting edge. In, in 1962, he published Anti-Federalism in Dutchess County, a study of um, democracy and class conflict in the revolutionary era, which I think, I believe that was his dissertation, still 
today is one of the more important works in that. Uh, in 1968, The Intellectual Origins of American Radicalism. Uh, he also wrote uh, a book uh, on class conflict, slavery in the United States Constitution. So in that particular area, he really is, is a trendsetter and to this day, um, one of the eminent uh, historians of colonial America. And uh, he was teaching at Yale when uh, his first book was published, uh, but he was also an activist. And I think that's the area where um, he emerged as, as really, I mean, there are a few people I think in, in American history who you could talk about uh, who have the, the legacy of Scotland. I think obviously Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn, there are many. And Howard and Noam, I'm sorry, yeah, Howard and Noam are, are very well known. Stott less so, which is really unfortunate because his, you know, in the, in the early 60s, he was actually arguably the best known public intellectual in America. He was on Bill Buckley. He was in the New York Times. Um, in 1964, Howard uh, was the director of the education project uh, for Freedom Summer in Mississippi. Um, Stott, Stott. I'm sorry, Stott was the, the uh, education director for Freedom Summer in Mississippi, working with SNCC. Um, in, uh, in 1965, he and Tom Hayden, many war activists, SDS, one of the SDS founders, and Dave Dellinger, a well-known socialist and pastor, who part of Chicago 8, both Hayden and Dellinger were in the Chicago 8, went to Hanoi on a peace mission. And uh, when they returned, Yale uh, fired uh, Stottenland. And after that, he was basically blacklisted and could not get uh, another academic job after the Vietnam trip. Um, and uh, a bit later than he and his wife, Alice, who's led a fascinating life and is a, uh, an incredibly important activist in her own right, uh, went to law school to get law degrees uh, because uh, Stein could not get a job as a historian any longer. Went to the University of Chicago Law School, obviously elite. Uh, and then he began another career uh, as a labor activist. Um, and this is what brought him back to Ohio. He, uh, he and Alice had actually published a book of an oral history it's called Rank and File. So they were already involved in labor issues, but he came back in uh, 1977, uh, so-called Black Tuesday, when the mills in Youngstown and other places, Cleveland, Gary, Indiana, shut down. And uh, in Youngstown, a, a coalition got together, formed uh, to try to keep the mills open and, and Stott was a big part of that. In fact, if you go today, there's a museum of labor uh, and industry at Youngstown State University. And when you go in, there's all kinds of video and much of it is, is thought talking about the, the fight. He also published a book about that uh, called The Fight Against Shutdowns. Uh, so, you know, he kind of created a, a career as a labor organizer too. And much of the interview that we're gonna, the encore that we're gonna uh, put up is, is about that. Um, and then Stott had another career. He was a lawyer. He was doing a lot of labor work, working with unions. And um, in 1993, there was an uprising and uh, at Lucas, Lucasville Penitentiary, which is a maximum security penitentiary in Ohio. And Stott and Alice became attorneys to some of the people who were involved in that. And so they became death penalty, uh, anti-death penalty advocates as well. Uh, you know, uh, again, they're just involved in, in kind of all of these things. And then um, continued to write. They wrote about nonviolence in America. They wrote about moral injury. They were with Vietnam vets. They were just... Uh, in, in every way imaginable, involved in the most important, every important uh, movement, I think, of the 20th and, and early 21st century. So just incredibly important people. And I know um, in your life, you know, uh, obviously the kinds of things that Stan and Alice did were, were, you know, really important. You could, you know, kind of say a few things about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think the foundations of the work they did as part of like, what I'm loosely calling the new left, the civil rights movement, I, I think is really important. I, I, I think that when Chomsky talks about the responsibility of the intellectuals, Stottenland was an, intele an intellectual who took great responsibility for their role, for his role in society. Um, but looking at that history in which you just described, Bob, I mean, the, I think the legacy come, speaks for itself. You know, you get blacklisted from an Ivy League history department and you go to law school and you become, you start fighting for labor pensioners and uh people in prison and and people on death row and i think i think that just sort of speaks for itself he's a he's a giant of the left he's a um he also continued to be an author I, he and alice together i think wrote over a dozen books oh, um, yeah. one book one book i had on my shelf that i wouldn't grab for this episode is one that he wrote with andre grubacek 
who's uh, an anarchist from the Balkans who teaches at the California Institute for Integral Studies. It's called Wobblies and Zapatistas. A lot of uh, probably more people in the activist space are familiar with this book, but it's just you know an important conversation about how there's this connection between you know the the anti-authoritarian left a hundred years ago when we're talking about the Wobblies and the Zapatistas, which has been a a force in in 21st century anti-authoritarian politics. And I, it's a, it was a great collaboration. I know that Andre, we've tried to get on the show, but he's always too busy, uh, you know, is a close friend of his and has, uh, talks about him quite a bit. If you follow Andre's social media, it's actually where we found out about Stodden. Um, but uh, just, you know, it's an important figure and, and needs to be more well-known. And if you're listening to this, please check out Wobblies and Zapatistas. Also, there's a, a book called The Stottenland Re- Reader. Uh, but also just listen to our interview in this encore episode. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the one thing about Stott, you know, he, he co-writes a book about anarchy, right? But he uh, he wasn't doctrinary, wasn't dogmatic. Um, he called himself the offering for himself. He used the joke, "I'm the only Quaker Marxist you'll ever meet," which probably isn't true. But I was a pacifist. Um, you know, as activists, I think we look at things like Freedom Summer, especially, but also like the old CIO organizing, you know, really as templates for what we do in Stott, um, was deeply involved in the, uh, the civil rights movement and in, in labor uh, organizing as well. Um, I got to know him uh, actually much later than I, I normally would. I had heard kind of, I, I'm in Texas and I wasn't in Ohio that much, but I'd heard he lived near where I did. And finally, uh, I think 2013 or 2014, I have a niece who was doing an MA in education and was taking a class with these two older people from the 60s, I think she referred to them as, and finally told my sister about it. My sister said, oh my God, you have to tell Uncle Bob. And so I was going into Ohio that summer and I started to visit. I met him and I started to visit. And I, every time I would go in, I became a frequent visitor. And I would just, it was like he was holding court. I mean, I obviously like to talk a lot, but with Stott and I mostly listened uh, and occasionally might ask him a question or a follow-up or something like that. But it was just absolutely stunning. Um, you know, he, uh, he played touch football with Paul Robeson. Uh, he and Alice were at the King house the night uh, Martin Luther King's daughter was born. Um, he you know, went to, to Vietnam with Dave Dellinger and Tom Hayden, you know, director of uh, education for Freedom Summer. He told me stories about uh, driving through Mississippi in 1964, late at night to pick up uh, people at uh, some airfield, uh, you know, and, uh, a couple of them, uh, Stanton's a pacifist. A couple of them were armed, you know. And Stanton's like, you know, he said I, he understood, you know. Uh, just a, just an amazing guy. Uh, they told me stories about being in Vietnam, meeting uh, members of the Provisional Revolutionary Government, meeting um, officials, you know, uh, and just, you know, his voice would crack when he talked about what he saw and, and the struggles he saw uh, in places like Vietnam, but also in, in the United States. Just he and Alice are. Uh, they're beatific. I, I, I refer to them as secular saints, uh, just incredible people. Every time I saw him, he was, you know, upbeat and he always had a bunch of ideas for projects. And I, to my great chagrin, I, I kind of was lackadaisical about it because it would have been really cool to have done something uh, with him because he suggested a lot of stuff. He, mine was like the last time I saw him was probably six or so months ago and he was still really sharp. Uh, and um, it was funny, I, the last time I saw him, well, actually the day I conducted this interview in early 2020, because then I went to Italy and then COVID hit, everything was shut down. Uh, but we were talking about politics and, and uh, you know, he's not a big fan of the Democratic Party, but he said, uh, he said, at my age, this may be the last president I ever live under. He says, it can't be Trump again. He's like, I don't care who it is. It can't be Trump again. So um, he was very happy about that. Uh, you know, in the last few conversations we had, we I talked a little bit about the 1619 project and we talked about, you know, just everything. I mean, he, he knew everything. He's just a, a fascinating, amazing person who um, really belongs up there. I mean, I've been very fortunate, in, 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 you know, to have met people like, you know, uh, Gabriel Coco and Marilyn Young and, and, and Noam, but um, Stockland is just a really special. And um, I'm really glad uh, that we got the chance to talk to him. Wish I followed through more, and you know, COVID was was a difficult time. I wasn't living far from it, but we were kind of like you know isolated. But uh, I did get a chance to spend a, a, a good amount of time with him in the past decade or so, and get to know him a little bit. And uh, 
just the fact that I could sit there and talk to him about these amazing experiences uh, really, you know, has made me, you know, made my life better. And I've learned a lot uh, about that. So, um, you know, we, we uh, hope you listen to this. Um, the, uh, this is before we became as savvy as we are now. So that the tech qualities may not be as, as good as they are. We didn't, we weren't on YouTube yet. So it's going to be audio. Uh, but what Stan says is really important. And, uh, you know, especially if you're an organizer, he talks about labor, but the stuff he talks about really, I think is relevant to, to pretty much, um, you know, whatever you're doing. So, um, you know, uh, Stanton Lynn present they, uh, you know, the world is a, a, a lighter place, a lesser place uh, without him in it. But uh, we're really fortunate to have his his uh, legacy with us and all the all the things he wrote, all the things he said are, are with us. And, you know, we're really proud that, you know, something we did as part of that as well. Yeah. Uh, so everybody enjoy and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Stockton Lind and Alice Lind will be joining us, uh, hopefully. Uh, we're going to talk today mostly, I think, about the organized labor unions, uh, where they were, where they are, maybe why so many people in unions supported Donald Trump in 2016. Uh, you've been in Youngstown for quite some time. You've been involved in Youngstown politics for quite some time. You were there in 1977 when things really turned badly. Um, just a, a little bit. What I, I don't think people nowadays, you know, union memberships at 10%, I don't think people really know what labor was like, especially in the post-World War II era, its strength um, and, you know, some of the concessions it made in order to get to that economic position? Well, perhaps I should say a word about how Alice and I found ourselves thinking about the labor movement. I was an assistant professor of history at Yale from 1964 until 1967. But in January 1966, the war in Vietnam was escalating very rapidly. And in the space of a year, I went from being the master of ceremonies at a Carnegie rally in New York City, all the way to making a surreptitious trip to North Vietnam with Tom Hayden and Herbert Aptecker, and um, in effect, uh, giving up my academic life, not as a voluntary act, but that was the effect of doing that on the Yale community. So we thought, well, uh, the Students for a Democratic Society is going to have its national headquarters in Chicago. Chicago's been a pretty lively place in the history of American radicalism. Um, we moved to Chicago, where at, I think, five universities, the history department voted to hire me for a full-time tenure-track job, and whoever is in the chain of command and usually just rubber stamps everything of that kind interfered and denied me a further academic Five simultaneously. Wow. One at a time. Yeah. One at a time. Okay, but still, wow. And that included Northern Illinois University, where Al Young was teaching, Roosevelt University that had a something of a radical past, Loyola, St. Joseph's, and Art. And so, what to do? And I was still very unclear about that in. August 1968, when the Democratic Party had its convention in Chicago, and uh, the whole world was watching as uh, Tom Hayden and others led street protests. I got arrested for a nonviolent effort to speak in the immediate neighborhood of the convention. And I was just soaking in a hot bath at the uh, 
end of a day of being in jail, getting out of jail, I was carefully examining if the uh, Chicago's finest drove up looking for me, <laughs> where she might see that they were coming, but not necessarily call herself to their attention. They would park outside that. And uh, I got a call. I was in the bathtub, hot bathtub. It was none other than Saul Alinsky, the okay. leading community organizer of the day, who um, I think saw me as a kind of symbolic link to younger radicals, and primarily for that reason offered me a job at a school for organizing that he was creating. And I was one of the initial four faculty members. And one of the other, one of the students, I was technically a faculty member, um, was a man from Gary, Indiana, who had worked in a steel mill. And somehow he began to tell me about a man named John Sargent, who he said was kind of the the person from all from whom all good things sprungeth. And uh, but he said he didn't know whether John was was uh, would talk with me. So I telephoned John Sargent. He invited myself, Alice, and our infant daughter to supper. Uh, Alice, how old would uh, Martha had been. She was about three or four. I remember John took her to see the goldfish. And the, the first thing he did, he took her by the head. And there was just never any question about our being buddies of the spirit, although we had lived quite different lives. And he completely revised my left liberal view of trade unions. Uh, in the steel industry, United States Steel had entered into a contract with the United Steelworkers of America. U.S. Steel didn't want to strike, didn't want any unpleasantness. They entered into a contract, and Alinsky, a little-known fact, took his basic organizing ideas from the early CIO, and in particular from John Lewis, about whom Alinsky wrote the first biography. And so in hearing Alinsky's views of how you go about uh, putting things together in a working class community, I was really also hearing a kind of reflection from the inside on the CIO. And it was a time when, despite the fact that there had been no strike in the organization at U.S. Steel, at Little Steel, which meant Bethlehem, Republic, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, and one or two others, um, there was indeed a, a strike in the spring of 1937. And that was the strike in which um, 10 workers were shot in the back and killed at a Memorial Day strike support rally in Chicago. And the liberal press, my parents included, just basked in the reflection of the CIO. But what I learned what John Sargent taught me, and which rang a bell as true because of uh, the work I was doing at Alinsky's school, which was so derivative, particularly from the organization of the packing house workers on the southwest side of Chicago. <clears throat> the outline was something like this. 
The goal of any sensible union mo movement was so-called recognition by the employer, which was understood to mean that henceforth, uh, in the absence of a very challenging procedure for getting rid of a union once you had it there, in order to work at, let's say, a steel mill, uh, of any size and significance, you had to be a member of the union. And if you were not, and if the company decided to hire you at that moment in time, you would become a member. And from John, I learned to look at, at the process in this way. And I, Alice and I put together a, a book of oral history called Rank and File. And in every edition of it, I think there have been four editions, there are these two or three pages from John Sargent that just uh, for me was like the heavens opening and, and for the first time understanding what I was seeing and feeling. John said that, yes, you never saw a period of rank and file activity to compare with the the early days of the union at places where the CIO established a foothold. And he said, what people don't understand is what happened next. Because the, the model that um, all trade unionists were encouraged to subscribe to was that you asked recognition from the employer, meaning that you were the only union that the employer would bargain with. And uh, what went down in that initial contract, if you were so fortunate as to get one, was likely to be the contract for a long time to come. Um, well, just to give you a feel, a, a whiff of the, the new atmosphere. To give you a whiff of the new atmosphere, um, when you made a con, let's take a big mill, and this is the one I'm going to focus on, Inland Steel, which was one of the um, little steel companies. Um, when you voted as a local union on the contract that was being negotiated between the United Steel Workers of America and the corporation, John told me we would be up on his roof, uh, he putting on new singles and I listening. Um, what John told me was that the the negotiation was entirely in the hands of the national union and that there had been at least one instance where the steel workers at inland steel who had their own contract committee had unanimously rejected the contract reached between the national trade union and the corporation and there was nothing they could do about it not only that the typical CIO contract had very, there was a great similarity in the initial contracts that the CIO obtained in auto with the United Auto Workers, rubber workers, packing house workers, electrical workers, and so on. What, what was the guts of, of a CIO contract? There were two contract clauses to which John directed my attention and which more and more verified themselves as, as the essence of, of what that tremendous upsurge of labor ended in being all about. Two key contract provisions. The first and most obvious was that, as everyone knows, 
with certain rare exceptions like U.S. Steel, the CIO obtained his first contract with uh, the leading company or the leading companies that they bargained together in that particular industry with two clauses. First clause in the new contract between the CIO and Corporation X or Company X was a no-strike clause, which should have made people's ears flap from, from the very first moment. How had they gotten this contract? How had they gotten that far? Through striking. What was the essence of the new contract? You can't strike during the duration of the contract because, but don't worry, we have this new grievance arbitration procedure through which we'll solve all your problems. Well, to make a very long and complex story short, when you negotiate for a contract in a period following an enthusiastic drive for recognition, the right to strike is a little abstract because people have just been out on strike, they've been scraping through, they've been maintaining their households, and and the the, the labor doesn't have a a very strong hand to play. And so the first characteristic provision of a CIO contract would be um, surrender the right to strike and related forms of direct action like slowdowns for the duration of the contract. And the grievance procedure proposed and enthusiastically administered by many liberal college professors <laughs> cheerfully uh, entered into the no-strike clause as an essential constituent part of a CIO contract because these were uh, academics, these were people who, who thought they changed the world through their um, intellectual conversations. <laughs> and the best comment on the, on the grievance procedure was that of a man named Marty Glaberman, a, a radical uh, organizer in, in auto who wrote a, a poem or short story about a grievance filed in the place where he worked during the summer heat. Can we open the windows a little? And um, time went by and time went by and Marty and his friends said, hey, what about that grievance? <laughs> We're melting now, but pretty soon the weather's going to change. Well, in um, January, the arbitrator finally ruled for the union and the management people went through the part of the shop where Marty was <laughs> nailing the windows up <laughs> so that everyone froze to death. It wasn't, it wasn't a very good way for for resolving even small problems because it took so long and it was, was a disaster. After the merger, the Felsiano merger, or was this before that? No, this was before, before I'm that. talking about early. This is okay. what people okay. miss. Right. 35, 36, 37. Yeah. The CIO has kind of a romantic uh, history. Exactly. And what in in the in the long view, I think bulks even larger is that it was assumed that the steel industry and the Amer the American economy in generally, particularly during World War II when there were uh, orders from the services that needed trucks and planes and bomb sites and what have you. The assumption was a natural one that this way of life would endure forever. And uh, in a town like Youngstown, Ohio, where we are now sitting, 
um, there was a kind of a, a routine for for life, which was that first of all, families from the same area that spoke the same dialect, maybe knew each other through intermarriage, would settle in the same part of town. Families would be together two or three evenings a week for a large communal meal. After graduating high school, which was a big deal, young men would typically serve in the military for a year or two, come back, their uncle would get them a job in the mill, and before you knew it, they were passing on this way of life to their children, gradually with the expectation that it would be college, not high school, and that this child of theirs might come to wear a white collar and do what had hitherto been considered a middle-class job. It was a middle-class job, and these children of the working class were uh, absorbed into such work, and the parents tended to regard their children's success at living a different way of life than their own way of life was the name of success. It didn't go on forever. As a matter of fact, Youngstown is, I think, distinguished among American communities that I happen to know anything by the fact that it had three successive steel mill closures in 1977, 1978, 1979. The resistance grew greater year by year, but the problem, not everywhere, but the problem in, in the steel industry was that so often what was going on was that the company would make money from out-of-date technology at a certain mill. The steel would be made in open hearths instead of in electric furnaces or basic oxygen furnaces. And it meant that if your mill closed and you organized, as we did, a movement to, to revive the mills, to keep them alive under some form of worker or worker community ownership, um, you weren't just told you needed $20 million to buy the land and the existing buildings and if you could manage the machinery. You were told that unless you put up not only the $20 million to buy the, the, the skeleton of what was there, but an additional $200 million to modernize, it was just a cruel joke to reopen because you're still you still would not be able to produce a ton of steel as cheaply as other places, some of them abroad, where their steel mills, in our case, had been destroyed during World War II, and they rebuilt with this newer technology. Had to be able to compete with it if you wanted to survive, and where were you going to find $225 million? The United States government put up a $100 million loan guarantee fund for all steel mills for the whole country. Now, didn't Griffin Bell, who was the attorney general, come to Youngstown to talk about this with you, or or some, some Carter? But some so, Carter administration. Not exactly. Okay. Well, yes. The Carter administration was, he came. Oh, okay. And met in the basement with lots of steelworkers in their shirt sleeves and told them about a little bit like Trump, yeah. uh, to the, the great things he was going to do, and he didn't do them. Yeah. So uh, what happened was that in addition to the no strike clause in the typical CIO contract. You had a so-called management 
prerogative clause. And what those big words meant was that when it came to investment decisions, when it came to deciding uh, would the company stay here or move? If it stayed, what new technology would it need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those decisions would be made by exclusively by the um, company sure. and the union, the representative of all the workers in that place, because after your sign-in period was over, if you became a, an ongoing member of the uh, employee of the company, you had to join the union. The union simply stood by and rang its hands and uh, did what it could to, to get benefits for people whose work had been taken away. And uh, John Barbero, one of the people uh, because of whom we moved here, used to say that that was like arranging for funeral benefits. Yeah. Yes, you got a little money, but your job, your whole future, your sense of where you belonged, how your children would stand on your shoulders and going forward to a better life and so on, all of that uh, was swept away. And there's been absolutely no change. Well, over 40 years later, we've just seen this in Lordstown. We had an automobile assembly plant in Lordstown that opened, I believe, about 1970. And the feeling in the valley, it's hard to describe, but there was one other place that made electrical fixtures for General Motors, where you were also talking about 12,000, 15,000 union members. Um, people said, wow, we've always got Lordstown. Yeah. No, you didn't. Yeah. Because in the last couple of years, I'm, I'm talking in, oh, what am I talking in? I was 19, no, I'm talking in the year 2000. Um, just a year or two ago, the, the Lord's, Lordstown went out of business and they're talking now, uh, now about how they're going to do alternative this and alternative that. But people have this dilemma. Should they stay in Lordstown where and surrounding communities where, of course, they put down roots, kids are going to school, they fixed up the house in a way that they, they and their wives or their husbands, if the union member is a woman, feel good about. Should they keep all that, but without a job, which mm -hmm. meant going into debt and and uh, really scraping along, or should they move? Uh, giving up any hope of getting back into a UAW-sponsored job like the one they had previously had. And so we have people driving hundreds of miles from, let's say, somewhere north of Detroit, coming to this area to see their family on the weekend. Yeah. And then on Sunday evening, heading out again for what at least was a job, in which they felt it their obligation to maintain. Um, but bringing the, the, the family under severe stress and divorce, drugs, many mm -hmm. problems that lay in wait. So, that's the basic story of our last 50 years. Um, we tended to be regarded as people who, despite the fact that they were lawyers and some sort of academic 
were on our side, were good people. So, for example, when Lordstown was in process of voting on the recently negotiated contract with General Motors, Alice and I went out to the picket line one day. Lo and behold, people I'd never met before in my life who were auto workers, not steel workers, was all starting and he was always on our side. Yeah. Which is a pretty gratifying feeling, but doesn't put much on the table for people whose whole way of life has been shot out from under them. And so uh, I think Alice and I are left with a sort of dual feeling of distress over the existing situation. I've taught a couple of courses at the local university, Youngstown State University, and the feeling you have there is that the kids are just getting their railway tickets for leaving town. Sure. That that. There's no real future for people here. I saw um, some data last year. Uh, Ohio actually uh, is one of the lower states in, in having college graduates here. And yet we have, you know, Ohio State, which is a massive school, a big state university system. And so I'm assuming that kids who do come to school, get a degree, they leave Ohio. They go elsewhere uh, because, you know, this, this is just a difficult place. It's very different than what I remember, you know, uh, growing up. Uh, my dad was a... Uh, for the city, he was the created an AFSME union at, at the city of Niles. But most of my friends' fathers worked in the mills, and they lived well. You know, they bought a house, they could go on vacation, could send their kids to college, which was affordable at the time. Second vehicle. Yeah, exactly, all that. And now, I think people don't understand the residual effect. Businesses associated with GM, you know, Falcon trucking, trucking went under briefly, and then. People own little, you know, fast food restaurants and mini marts and things like that go under. And uh, YSU's enrollment is down, I think, this year, partly because of that. And, of course, as you mentioned, uh, what we call the deaths of despair, opioids and poverty and suicides and things like that are, are soaring to really, really unknown levels. By the way, one might say, well, what about the local university? Are they leading a campaign for something or other? No. Uh more than half the classroom hours are taught by, um, what do you call it? Adjuncts. By adjuncts. Yeah. I, that's... The adjuncts tend to be of two kinds. They are the wives or husbands of people academically employed at Youngstown State where they're not really worried that much about how much money they make. And in fact, they haven't had an increase in 25 no, years. That's, that's and, and, and the other thing that drives me nuts is uh, people say, well, but yeah, there are these courses that you can do on television. Yes. Well, maybe there are. But I remember, even at Yale, um, you know, hours, what are they called? Uh, hours when the faculty member will be available. Right. And and people were sitting on the floor on desks, you know, wow. we were we were talking about things. And I don't believe you can do at least education that touches on the nature of society, who runs it, how can it be changed? I don't think you can do that very well over a television. No, I've, I've it, done those. It takes face to face. Yeah, and it's a huge difference. Uh, some of the students work and they like to do that, but the big classes, I always make sure they're one-on-one. -on -one. And it's, it's, it's gratifying because you have a lot of students come in who've been through the public school system in Texas, which is not exemplary. And, you know, the first day I kind of, in a very subtle way, say, you've been lied to your whole life, so I'm going to tell you something else. And at the end of the semester, like a significant number will line up and say, man, thank you. I've never heard this before. They're working class kids. They're not invested in the system. You know, if I were at Yale or Brown or Wesleyan, they would be very different. Uh, so that's that's gratifying. But uh, one of the things, you know, uh, that I've noticed in the last few years is when I talk about labor, I have to kind of step back and say, oh, you don't really know what I'm talking about and give them 
a 10 or 15 minute kind of primer and what unions are. And, you know, I wrote a, a book for my class where there's a great deal of labor history. And I talk about the, you know, the great uprising and the Battle of Blair Mountain and Ludlow, which is just absolutely stunning. The idea that there was you know, violent class war in the United States is just incomprehensible to most people. So it's, 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 uh, there's always been this sense that, you know, we work, we should be grateful that we have a job. Thank you, boss, whatever you want, that kind of thing. And I try to tell them it wasn't always like that. You know, there was a, a period when, you know, workers stood up for themselves and uh, it's just become more and more difficult. Um, rank and file is uh, uh, one of the uh, ways I was introduced to you and Alice. I read a couple of your articles on the war for independence and, and Stott is one of the uh, giants in that area. He's written uh, a very famous piece called, uh, was it the Who Shall Rule at Home? Is that the name of the very famous article about uh, class dynamics within the, uh, the war for independence? Uh, and then uh, my labor historian at uh, Ohio State told me all about you. So. Or during the period when I was just sniffing about and you know, wrestling with the question, should I be a uh, pretend steel worker or <laughs> a useless academic decided to be a lawyer? And it wasn't useless. It wasn't successful, but we put up a hell of a fight. And um, I'm looking at the uh, oral histories that were offered by a series of um, rank-and-file folks that Alice and I encountered when we moved here, who were indeed the reason for our moving here, because there have been socialist manual workers in the United States who were not only against the boss, but against the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. who well, wasn't one of the issues when Lordstown started? There was this kind of revolutionary movement within Lordstown that the Union leadership very, very much. Yeah. And the guys, uh, and you had the Dodge Revolutionary Movement, the uh, drum, and uh, yeah, was it well, black workers? It was we didn't the GM. we didn't have quite that because yeah. there wasn't the same concentration of African Americans. Right. But there was a spirit then. I'm trying to. Uh, uh, many, many years ago, I interviewed Lane Kirkland because I was uh, discussing the Vietnam War and I thought, see, I was busy on Vietnam and he said, hey, we were making good money. So, you know, the fact that, you know, people were getting killed and Vietnam was getting destroyed was just irrelevant because it was it was good for uh, wages for a certain group of, of workers in key industries. Yeah. this I talked about the man named John Sargent. Mm -hmm. The steel worker from whom about 1970, 50 years ago, I sort of formulated an initial hypothesis. I haven't changed my mind an inch. I think he, he really thought. And there's a section of this oral history book, Rank and File, that I'm without a contract without any agreement with the company, without any regulation concerning hours of work, conditions of work or wages, a tremendous surge took place. We talk of a rank and file movement. The beginning of union organizer was the best kind of rank and file movement you could think of. John L. Lewis sent in a few organizers, but there were no organizers at Inland Steel. And I'm sure there were no organizers at Youngstown Sheet and Tube. The union organizers were essentially workers in the mill who were so disgusted with their conditions and ready for a change that they took the union into their own hands. There is a, a myth that the little steel strike of 1937 was a failure because the union in steel, I'm talking about particularly, didn't win a contract. 
and the place where where John Sargent uh, worked in Indiana, but near Illinois and Chicago, was a sort of medium-sized company called Inland Steel, and there. Well, let me read. Well, what what happened was that in Indiana, where Inland Steel, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, uh, Bethlehem Steel, one of the U.S. steel mills in Gary, were all located, there was a special understanding between the strikers and the governor of Indiana who kind of negotiated a separate agreement. He wasn't giving them a, a standard CIO contract which provided for hours of work, um, retiree benefits, et cetera, et cetera. No, what he said was any group of workers that wants to no negotiate with the boss is going to have an open door under this understanding and that was all john and his friends needed because they had so much more capacity to to enliven the the mass that they were part of than than anyone else and so here's a here's a book the entire book is about the 1937 strike by a very good historian it's called the last great strike and he accepts the general judgment that it was a terrible failure in the worker. Ten people were killed in Chicago. People went, went back to work, kind of dragging their bodies behind them. But look what he also says. On July 1st, Inland Steel reopened the Indiana Harbor Mill. Amid cries of victory from thousands of jubilant workers, some sporting beards that they had vowed to grow until the strike ended. The daily worker joined the chorus, likening the quote triumph unquote to the victory of the patriots over British tyranny. <laughs> um, yeah, they thought they had won because they had won. Right. They had a, a right to to organize. They felt they could out-organize anybody else on the face of the earth, and they did because they worked there. That uh, Let me bring up one more thing, because um, we've seen what I call, I use the word resuscitation in the last few years of some of some labor activism, particularly among teachers, uh, the Flight Attendants Union, which really ended the shutdown, the government shutdown last year, and Sarah Nelson's been very active. And, and a lot of this stuff has been in violation of state law, you know, and they're going out anyway. Um, do you think that's kind of a, a trend or, or a development that can be built upon? Absolutely. Because at the same time that's happening, we have half of UAW is under indictment, you know, right now. Absolutely. And if I, I we don't travel very much now. <clears throat> I didn't get to West Virginia. But I understand that some of the teachers had a union, but the, the math right. teachers did not. Right. They, you had this really interesting right. situation where the people who had a union could talk about some of the things they'd won. People who didn't have a union could say, well, we like that and we're going to go out and get it. Yeah. And um, yes, I think that can happen. And, and much of this has happened in so-called red states too. You know, not the, the not in Manhattan, not in San Francisco, but Arizona, yeah, exactly. Colorado. And that one thing I I know uh, one of the I, a lot of people around here, people I've talked to, I'm sure people you've talked to, who've been union members, worked in the factories, um, really supported Donald Trump in 2016. Now, much of that, in, in my anecdotal uh, knowledge, was because they really didn't like the Clintons. Uh, and, uh, and at the same time, even though they voted for Trump, they also spoke very well of, of Bernie Sanders. I just wonder, like, is that, uh, kind of a sense of desperation? Like, you know, people have been lying to us. No one's done anything. Trump is coming down here and telling us he cares. Well, is there more to it than that? unfortunately, uh, 
I didn't understand it yeah. at the time. I don't think many people did. I thought that fascism was a product of a situation where the, there was a mass unemployment and people thought they were rebelling against capitalism along with uh, their other activities. And I think it was a superficial view that, that what I probably missed was that this well-entrenched father to son, indeed grandfather to father to son way of life, the, the rituals around high school graduation, the service in the military, all of that was just being undermined by the fact that there was no job to begin with to, to make these other things available. And uh, somehow this uh, distinguished war veteran who didn't fight because there was something wrong with his foot that he couldn't remember which right. it was, um, somehow he, he picked up on, on that. And he said, well, it's simple. You need something. You need me. Right. I'm the only person in the world who can do this. Just follow me. I've seen a, a lot of liberal and, and leftists lately writing a lot about Faber. None of them ever worked. <laughs> and um, they kind of dismiss some of the ideas. I think you said, as, oh, that's that's kind of trite or that's corny or that's just a. And I, I've often said, you know, it's like, come to Yastown. Come, come on, I'll, I'll show you around. I don't know that well. But and I think there is this sense among these kind of intellectuals that, that you know, uh, the working class, uh, you know, they're they've been caught or they're not that bright or whatever. And. I said, you know, they're they're and, and I think one thing that you really said that's important is their community has been wiped out, not just their job. Um, last thing, I'm going to put you on the spot. You sang a very beautiful IRA lullaby to me the other day, and I was wondering if we could get an encore performance. Yeah, well, I was explaining that my parents were both teachers. They uh, hired a young woman from Ireland to be what I guess you'd call our governess. There must be a better word, but I, I'm not thinking of it. And she was a remarkable person who brought with her the, the songs of the uh, Irish uprising in 1916. And there were songs about my old Fenian gun there were songs about uh, Michael DeWire. The British soldiers surrounded the house where he and his friends took refuge and set fire to it. And a man who had already uh, been shot said, um, they only have single shot muskets. I'm gonna go to the doorway. They'll empty their guns and you all make a break for it. So anyway, the song that I sang was um, a little bit of Kevin Barry. Early on a Monday morning, just high upon a gallow tree, Kevin Barry gave his young life for the cause of liberty. Just a out of 18 summers, Still there's no one can deny as he walked to death that morning, proudly held his head on high. Shoot me, shoot me like a soldier. Do not hang me like a dog. For I fought for dear old Ireland. On that still September morn, all around the little bakery where we fought them hand to hand, stand informer, turn informer, and will free you. Very proudly answered no.
I also might mention one more thing about where my, let's call it for the moment, radicalism came from. And I want to describe a experience of my father's, which is the thing about his life of which I am most proud and uh, in a sense gave me a, a pattern that he managed for a summer and I have tried to manage for a longer period of time. He went to Union Theological Seminary, although he had a very, uh, he didn't believe in, in, in a personal God. I, I'm not sure how he would have described what he believed in it, but it was much more an, an ethic, a sense of solidarity than any kind of ideology. And it was the custom at Union Theological Seminary between the first and second years uh, during the summer, a student would become a temporary minister at a community that had no regular pastor, something that, that we ran into in, in uh, South America later on. A lot of liberation theology came from these people who, whose basic relationship was not with some big church bureaucracy, but with a particular community, a particular neighborhood. So my dad somehow drew a uh, ticket to Elk Basin, Wyoming. And he arrived there early in the 1920s by stagecoach. And the first evening at the boarding house, he sensed the kind of chill in the air, tried to figure out what it was, made a decision that very evening sought out the man who did the hiring for Standard Oil. This was a, an oil community. Was hired as a pick and shovel laborer, spent the summer as a pick and shovel laborer next to people who lived there and preached, preached in the schoolhouse Sunday night. Ah. And I thought, well, at least that's the beginning of the kind of relationship that might exist between an awful lot of teachers and doctors and lawyers sure. and the working class communities they serve. Yeah, and I think that's something that, that I hope really stands out, the idea that this is more than that, the place where you go to work, that it's, it's bigger than that. And, um, yeah, there's a community, and you know, people used to go out have softball teams and right. well, he, my father he, doing. he couldn't preach on during yeah. the day on Sunday because everybody went rainbow trout fishing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Alice and Stott and uh, Tender Comrades. Uh, I appreciate this so much. Uh, so um, it's really wonderful, and you've both been an inspiration to, to a lot of us. Thank you.